0: I'm Chris Reback. Welcome to Quick Conversations, our podcast that explores the extraordinary world of global supply chain logistics, how it keeps business and life moving. As the COVID-19 crisis continues its dramatic impact on lives globally, in the life science space, patients who are being treated for non-COVID-19 illnesses still need to receive their treatments, even during a pandemic. Clinical trials must move forward and medical supply chains have to be kept intact. What's more, while the virus rages, many companies around the world have quickly switched their focus to the development of a COVID-19 vaccine. The usually fast-paced world of life science logistics is now moving even faster. So what goes into supporting logistics for clinical trials when confronted by so many pandemic-created obstacles? What solutions and services can help companies adhere to trial protocols, keep patients safe, and ensure that their therapies are received on time? And what are the best logistics practices for overcoming an array of challenges, including government regulations, severely reduced airline schedules, and dire economic situations? Scott Ohanesian, Senior Vice President of QuickStats Commercial Operations in North America, works with pharmaceutical and biotech companies on designing comprehensive clinical trial logistics plans. In his years of work, Scott has created customized supply chain solutions, from preclinical to clinical to commercialization, that meet client objectives, maintain product integrity, and ensure patient safety. We caught up with Scott on Zoom, and as you've seen from live interviews on cable news and other podcasts, the audio is not quite the same as when everyone's in the studio. But Scott's valuable insights and guidance come across loud and clear. Before a conversation with Scott, though, a quick ask. If you like these quick conversations, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. It'll make a big difference in helping people find the podcast. That's it. Here's my conversation with Scott Ohanesian. Scott, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. Thank you very
1: much for having me, Chris.
0: So let's start out by giving me just a bit of the background on QuickStat. What are its areas of focus, and what are the partnerships that you've had with life sciences companies in terms of bringing new drugs and medical protocols to market?
1: QuickStat's been around for thirty-nine years, and over that time, and things have obviously within the life science space have, have very much evolved. And so, QuickStat works very closely with biopharmaceutical companies and within the life science industry to help with preclinical shipments. So that would be shipments of R and samples or shipments that are, are being worked on uh, prior to something going into their clinical trial. And then we'll also help with clinical trial supply chain as well. So moving drug out to depots or out to um, clinical sites and also moving patient samples back to central labs for testing. And we even now do a lot within the commercial supply chain, um, especially with the with the kind of, I wouldn't necessarily say evolution of medicine, but the the, the push out of, personalized medicines now. We're seeing success from the personalized medicine space. That's very much an area where commercial supply chains are supported by QuickStat and very much helping out with autologous and allogeneic therapies.
0: COVID-19 has dramatically changed things, uh, I assume, with the companies that you work with, um, in addition for uh, you and, and your company as well. Tell me about what you've been seeing from your clients over the last months, the impact that the pandemic has had on what they've been focusing on and ultimately what you and the Quickstat team have been doing?
1: COVID-19, as as you know, it's affected not just our industry, but many industries worldwide across the globe. And within the life science space, um, because COVID-19 exists doesn't mean all the patients that are being treated with other diseases go away and they still need to receive their treatment. And so the challenge that we've seen is in places like Spain and Italy and other countries throughout the world where they're having challenges in certain regions with the amount of patients that need to seek help at certain hospital sites. And due to that, there's been a a huge strain on healthcare infrastructure. And so for a lot of the companies, they're trying to figure out, well, can I get my therapies to the sites or can my patients actually get to the sites to receive treatment? Um, it's extremely important to find out ways to get those therapies to the patients, it can affect the outcomes that they're going to receive from the treatment they can get. And then for our partners, you know, the sponsors, you know, it's very much about the patients, very much a patient centric focus. Um, but they also want to ensure that the that they're getting their clinical data as well to know if the drugs they're trying to bring to market are going to be safe, if they're going to be effective. Um, and that's extremely important because that has an impact even beyond the patient populations being treated within the clinical trial but actually for all the patients that are suffering from whatever disease state that that trial is designed to treat.
0: And how has it affected your work, your day to day? Obviously, we're talking today, uh, you're at your home uh, working from there.
1: For me personally, I'm I'm one of the lucky people, right? I can work from home um, and, and, you know, can really make that transition somewhat easily. I have a a toddler that you might hear running around screaming in the background from time (laughs) to time. So just like everybody else and a lot of people that have, you know, pets and children at home, when I'm on conference calls with many of my clients, I hear a lot of background noise, but we're very much the lucky ones because we can, you know, face this transition and continue to do, do our job. Um, the real, you know, heroes and the real people um, on the front lines and in the hospitals doing great work. And then also the people at our offices, because there's many essential workers that still need to show up to quick stat offices. I think. As an organization, we've done a fantastic job of leveraging our robust IT systems to have many people working from home. But the nature of our industry means, you know, a lot of what we're doing is dealing with, um, you know, very much temperature sensitive drug product therapies that need to be maintained at certain temperatures. So, for example, if you look at a lot of um, chemically uh, based therapies, a lot of those are, are shipped at a controlled room temperature, which is 15 degrees to 25 degrees Celsius, whereas a lot of biologics are shipped at refrigerated temperatures at two to eight degrees Celsius. So a lot of our staff um, is still having to go in to those facilities to clean the the, the packaging appropriately to protect themselves and to protect uh, patients or hospital sites that we're receiving the therapies, but then having to condition that the, those, that packaging and ensuring that it's gonna be be able to be used again. Because a lot of what we're doing is utilizing reusable assets, or reusable shippers, to be able to move these therapies around the world at appropriate temperatures.
0: There already are challenges um, inherent in the process. You're describing some of them. I mean, the the temperature requirements, just just one of them um, in, in managing shipments for clinical trials. Um, and, and so much complexity in bringing a new drug to market. Talk to me about the global supply chain and what's been needed to address those challenges that you already have under normal circumstances but are now having to address uh, under the current circumstances.
1: I think using examples can be can be very helpful. So Please. some of the therapies that we're supporting, for example, like a personalized medicine, and in one case, an autologous therapy. And, and simply all autologous really means is instead of using a, like a, a small molecule therapy, we we'll use a chemical compound. And that will be what the active pharmaceutical ingredient is in the therapy. With an autologous personalized medicine, you're actually taking cells or some sort of starter material from an in, the patient that's actually sick. You're going to process that material. It could be um It could be a, a tissue sample or a tumor sample. And you're going to process that um, starter material into the actual therapy that you're going to make. And then you're actually going to send that that therapy that you've made from that individual starter material back to that individual for treatment. So it's a circular supply chain that is very much vein to vein. And many of the therapies that are on the market now that have been approved by the FDA or or various regulatory bodies um, around the world, um, many of those autologous therapies you're treating patients with that are extremely sick um, some of them are treating cancer patients that you know this is the the last the best defense they have against the, the cancer that they have and so they don't have the luxury of time so they can't delay sending this and from a, a manufacturing standpoint there's very strict temperatures that need to be adhered to very strict timelines of when that apheresis will be viable to be able to be processed into the therapy um, and all of that, you know, all of those supply chains that are already a challenge, even in the best of times, now become even more of a challenge when you have 80 to 90% of international flights grounded, when you have many domestic um, flights that aren't working and you have the normal supply chains that you're trying to leverage, not necessarily working at the same capacity that they, they have been prior to COVID-19. And so one of the nice things about, working within the space that we do we've always had to plan for the worst and hope for the best so the nice thing is we'll already have spent quite a bit of time doing primary routing secondary routing and tertiary routing um, now more than ever we're having to really leverage the, those alternative routing so many shipments that might have gone via flight now might be having multiple drivers doing a direct drive or we might be leveraging something like a charter flight um, rather than um, you know take the risk that the commercial flight might get canceled, which we've, we've seen a lot of lately. So there's a lot happening within within our space to ensure that those therapies and those starter materials continue to move. And that's across the spectrum. It's not just with personalized medicine. it has to also happen with patient samples and with just normal therapies that are treating patients. So um, another e- example would be, you know direct to patient and i mentioned before earlier that there's a challenge for a lot of patients to get to sites and so what we're sometimes trying to do now where the protocol allows and where the sponsor or the cro that's helping support the trial has been able to receive local permission we're helping get the therapies from the sites to the patient's home and so that's something that you know we're seeing really surge because in instances and in geographies and in circumstances from a health standpoint where patients can't get to sites, that is a fantastic option for them to continue to get their treatment and not expose them to risk. Talk to me
0: about the multiple transportation options and you're moving, you know, to your secondary, your third level and and it sounds like even perhaps beyond. Um, you know, in terms of backup plans and backup, your, your backups to the backups, you're even having to engage in. What might that look like? You mentioned charter flights, but are there other examples? I mean, in, in particularly when we're talking about having to move items potentially cross border when border crossings might not be open or, or there might be certain restrictions. How are you literally moving packages?
1: So one of our clients, again, um, this was a, a number of weeks back when you know, when things started becoming more difficult to move and more lockdowns across the European Union. And, for example, you saw Poland shut down its borders. Um, now, that wasn't necessarily a shutdown to goods. But, you know, if you have flights that aren't coming in or you you don't have reliability on flights, that's not an avenue that you can put a critical therapy in. And you wouldn't want to do that. There's just too much risk. You need to mitigate that risk. So, for example, with shipments going, or we had some placement of packaging we had to do into Poland to be able to actually then move the therapies from the sites to the patients' homes. We actually leveraged two drivers driving, um, and they're obviously they have to switch off driving, and there's certain limitations you have from a standpoint of how much long a driver can drive. You have to follow all the regulations. But we had those drivers, um, you know, basically driving in tandem. To get to the, the, the border of Poland. And then what they actually had to do was then transfer that packaging to drivers in Poland because they weren't allowed to enter the country. And then those drivers in Poland now have to bring that packaging to the sites where the, the um, hospital staff could pack out the therapies and then the drivers could bring it to the patient's homes. And there's a lot more that goes into that, obviously, because of patient privacy. And we can talk about that a little bit later, but that's one example. And I think something that you'll see that's been the, the, probably biggest challenge to the team and something I'm really proud of um, with our staff. And I really think they've answered the call um, to ensure that shipments continue to move. It might sound simple to say, okay, well, this flight's no longer work um, taking off or here's a secondary option. But what happens when you actually have a flight and you have material booked and last minute they cancel? And that's where we've seen our team be proactive in planning, okay, when this occurs, how do we leverage the next best solution. And so what I've seen is some very creative um, usage of trains throughout Europe. So we're actually using trains to move material. I've been seeing direct drives. And like I mentioned before, I've seen charter flights. And those are really happening in instances where you either have uh, a great deal of product that's going to have a a big impact across many patients, or you have a uh, a therapy that will have a huge impact on even one individual's life. And, you know, you can't allow that. shipment to fail and that's where we're seeing those alternatives being used.
0: Sounds like pretty much everything except for bicycles. And and my guess is you would use a bicycle if you had to?
1: We we would do we always tell our clients we're as flexible as can be to ensure we're following good distribution practices, but our end goal is to always get the therapy to the patient on time and within the proper specifications. So I think we'd we'd explore every opportunity to get it there, whether it's bicycle, spaceship, whatever was available
0: spaceship. That would be good. That would be setting new standards, no doubt. And and just to be clear, can you offer direct-to-patient services throughout the world?
1: Yes. Um, Quicksat has been offering direct-to-patient services across the world, and and it does depend on on the regulatory approval that the sponsor or the local CRO has gotten in-country. What we've seen with COVID-19, which has actually been really nice to see is it's, it's collective learning and collective intelligence. So a lot of the regulatory bodies that might have rejected the use of direct from patient or direct to patient within their country in the past now realize that it's, it's needed and then it's required in some of these cases and there's no other alternatives to get therapies to patients. So some countries where it actually wasn't necessarily approved from a regulatory standpoint, They've loosened regulations to allow it to happen. QuickStat is doing this across dozens of countries, and we have the ability to provide this service wherever it's approved by the local regulatory body. And in
0: this conversation, you've talked about therapies, you've talked about the clinical trials. Are the logistics, are the requirements different when we're starting to talk about the direct-to-patient shipments, or are you leveraging all of the same challenges and requirements and capabilities, um, you know, in, in all of these different areas?
1: That's a really great question. I, I think the best way to explain it is that you, you can leverage other areas of your normal supply chain to, you know, from a standpoint of your network, but from a standpoint of actually delivering to a patient home, it's a very different supply chain because you're now, if you're collecting or delivering to a patient's home, there's HIPAA laws there's patient privacy laws. Um, so there's all these other ramifications for having to blind certain pieces of data or ensuring certain pieces of data are redacted. And so you have the challenge of needing to update various stakeholders of what's happening within the supply chain, but doing so without sharing any potential information that should be kept private or confidential. So there's a lot that we leverage our IT systems for to do that and it, the, the IT system, Quick Online, that we utilize in quick track does a fantastic job of ensuring that that patient information is kept private. But from a standpoint of delivering to patients home, what COVID-19 has also done is we're seeing this big surge in the use of of the volume of shipments that need to now go to these patients homes. But we've also had to change the way that we're delivering to the patients homes or collecting from a patient's home. Because again, you're possibly dealing with an immunocompromised person at the house or somebody that's a caregiver or a parent that will be then, you know, giving this therapy to their child or their relative or whomever it might be, we need to make sure that that process is as contactless as possible, while at the same time um, abiding by the regulations. So generally when we're delivering a shipment, we need to get physical sign-off that the shipment's been delivered to the right person. But of course, either that physical um, sign-off, there's the, you know, there's the opportunity for the driver and the person that's receiving the therapy to be somewhat at risk. And so, of course, there's personal protective equipment, other things. But what we've had to do is implement and train and roll out um, new protocols from mm. a safety perspective across their entire network. And we've had to do that in ra- re- record timing. So, you know, it's just a new challenge we've had to face. And our team's really done a great job to meet that challenge.
0: Is there a short list of best practices for direct-to-patient logistics that you would uh, tick off?
1: What I've, always, I, what I've always told people is that when it comes to direct-to-patient, advanced notice and planning is, is, is key to ensuring um, you know the most smooth supply chain setup possible. Obviously, under these circumstances, that's often not the case. What I would say is communication. And what I mean by that is for the sponsor side or from the CRO side or whoever's setting up the direct-to-patient trial or direct-from-patient trial with the QuickStat team is really communicate what it is you want. One of the nice things about QuickStat as an organization is we can be flexible. Obviously, the foundation of everything we do is based upon quality and our quality management system, which is consistent across the globe. However, what we can do is customize. So for example, I have some direct-to-patient trials where the patient can't be dosed until the temperature data um, is provided back to that sponsor and so we need to make sure that that data gets back to them as quickly as possible so the patient doesn't have to wait to take their dosage Um, we have other situations where you know there's there's home health nurses that are involved um, with the delivery and there's going to be a returning sample and so again i think from a best practice standpoint is to really understand whats what it is you're hoping to achieve with your direct-to-patient trial, um, what specific needs you have for that trial to make sure that the proper stakeholders are getting communication when they need it. And I think one other piece of advice I'd offer is understand and really uh, think about which stakeholders need that information. Because what I've seen across many supply chain is sometimes when you have too many chefs in the kitchen or people that might not need to be involved with certain parts of the supply chain, that sometimes having those added uh, stakeholders involved that that aren't necessarily um, critical to that part of the supply chain can cause more confusion than clarity. And, and that's something I would definitely focus on.
0: And in this work, you're assisting the pharma biotech world with delivering human samples and plasma to aid them in research or Deliver investigational medicines to to patients. Can can you talk specifically about how you're assisting the pharma biotech world in that space? And are there are there lessons or insights or even some of these best practices that you've mentioned where you're in a sense almost able to guide them? You know, in, in terms of uh, how to make sure that these processes and these uh, you know direct to patient capabilities um, run smoothly.
1: Sure. I mean, I, I think it goes beyond direct to patient. Like you said, it's in, you know, there's obviously patient samples and therapies to people um, at their homes. And I think it goes beyond that. If you look at things like personalized medicine, um, where, you know, whether it be autologous, you know, going vein to vein with one individual, or whether it's allogenic, where it's going to be coming from one healthy possible, you know, a possible healthy donor out to many individuals. I think a lot of the best practices that you see generally throughout our industry, so chain of identity, chain of security, um, you know, a lot of advanced planning on what routes can be used. Um, You know, a lot of those things to me just become magnified now under COVID-19, the impact of COVID-19, because if you've been doing those things all along, then you're already gonna have a very strong basis for your supply chain that you can leverage. And it makes it very easy Um, to ensure that the right stakeholders are getting the communication they need with their supply chain when they need it. And also makes it very easy for us as a a service provider to understand, well, when X, Y, or Z happens, sponsor A, B, or C is allowing us to use these other alternatives. And so you're not having to ask permission. You've already proactively received that go-ahead to be able to put us in the best position to ensure that shipment continues to move. So what I would say there, Chris, is it's a lot of the best practices, which is really just discussion and planning of how the supply chain should work, really just becomes magnified under the you know, impact of COVID-19. And if you have a strong supply chain already in place, it won't be seamless, but it will mitigate a lot of the risk you're supposed to during this time.
0: Are there any examples, case studies, uh, that you can share, obviously, without revealing any client's identities, um, of, of specific projects, that presented challenges that that maybe have been pretty exclusive to the times that we're living in.
1: I think just to start off from a thirty thousand foot point of view, obviously as an industry, we're all in this together right now to try to find um, you know way to treat COVID nineteen, to try to find a vaccine, and uh, to try to to learn about about this this um, you know virus so that we can overcome it. And so what we've seen is a huge influx of projects that are actually designed around COVID-19. We're actually shipping um, antibodies from patients that have uh, have now um, become healthy after having had COVID-19 to see if, if that can be used for therapies. We're actually sending out um, compassionate use therapies and that's instances where there's a, a therapy that's actually been created to treat other diseases that they think might have an effect on COVID-19. So we're having to obviously Um, send those therapies into hospitals where patients are being treated. We're having to do a lot with shipping reagents, which are used for testing um, when it comes to tests for COVID-19 or other sort of um, biomarkers in somebody's system. It's been exciting for us as an organization to be able to feel like we're doing a small contribution to hopefully finding, you know, uh, an answer or a cure. In regards to specific examples for clients, there's many to choose from. Um, one large pharma client, um, they they ended up switching dozens of trials across five continents and dozens of countries over to direct to patient. So, you know, they were having challenges or they were concerned about the patient's populations within their trials, being able to have the access or taking the risk to have to go to a site. You know, again, some of these countries, the the subway systems aren't working, or you don't want to be on them, and public transport's not working. So they needed to find a way across their trials and across the continents and geographies that they're covering with their trials to be able to get therapies to patients' homes. So we were able to step in and do that. And in some of those situations, you had patients that were actually traveling, you know, from Indonesia, for example, into Singapore, but they're not able to do that now to get treated. So we we're mm-hmm. able to work with them and the local regulatory bodies in their countries to ensure that those uh, therapies could get to those patients so they could get treated. Um, And I think that's a great example of seeing an organization realize, hey, we need to adapt. Another specific example was we had um, patients across Italy, France, Spain, Poland, um, the Netherlands, Belgium, um, and Germany for a trial who are running out of study medication and they weren't Mm -hmm. able to get to sites there as well. And all the therapy has to be moved at 15 to 25 Celsius. Otherwise, they couldn't sign off on the patient taking the dose. And so what had happened was they had contacted us and they literally had days before the patients were going to run out of um, therapy. And there was hundreds of patients across all those different countries. And so what we're able to do is work with them and actually um, have hundreds of packaging reusable shippers conditioned. Along with the temperature monitors that they needed, we were able to get the sites access to our online system, so they could complete the, the online booking to ensure patient privacy um, was swallowed. And we also set up um, individual um, methods of, of contacting us for some of the countries where regulations are a little bit different around patient privacy. And long story short, over the course of about ten days, all of those patients were able to receive their treatment and you know, that CRO and that sponsor was extremely excited because they were in a really in a state of panic when they first came to us. And um, we as a team, you know, felt, you know, felt proud because we we're able to ensure the patients were able to get the therapies they needed. There's been, you know, many other cases similar to that. And that might be just moving uh, patient samples back um, to the central labs that need them in places like Argentina and Brazil, um, where there's you know severe lockdowns put into place, but there's still patients that are going to some of the sites and you know it's it'd be a real shame if they took the all the trouble to get to a site to have their their um, their blood drawn and they're yeah. not able to get the results back. so we want to make sure we don't let them down.
0: Yes, I imagine that there is a certain amount of pride the The other thing I'm really finding myself wondering and listening to these is How's your blood pressure, Scott? I mean, <laughs> with all of those, uh, you know, lives and patients, you know, and and transportation and materials on the line, um, you, you keep a, you know, your blood pressure okay? I,
1: I think all of us have to, you know, just organization wide, we have to really stay level and stay even keeled because, you know, things of through our industry of logistics. It's really a 24-7 industry and there's always gonna be something that's gonna rise up. So I think for me, my blood pressure stays pretty even. And I think the team also gives me a lot of confidence. I know that we have really strong team members. I know we really have do a great job of internal communication. We have great, you know, daily calls and daily updates so I can see what's going on throughout our network. And we really try to be, you know, a voice of confidence for our clients because you know we need them to have trust in us. And we need them to know that we're going to be here and we're going to be calm, cool, and collected. And when things don't necessarily go the way we want with the flight getting canceled or something else, that we'll look for the next best solution and have already been prepared for that so that we can ensure that you know, their shipment doesn't get stopped.
0: Describe for me how you consult with clients in terms of actually helping design for them a, a supply chain.
1: I think a large part of what we do is really consultative, if you're, you're acting as a consultant, you're being an, an advocate for your, for your client and for their client sometimes, depending on the nature of the relationship. Um, we really need to understand the why as well behind what they do and, and being a consultant, that's really important because if we assume we know why they're trying to do something, but we don't really know that why, um, I don't think we're gonna develop the best supply chain. So we absolutely, act as consultants. We want to understand the what, how, the why, um, the when, you know, all of those things. And so what we really try to do is understand, well, what is it you're trying to build? Who, where we, you know, what are we trying to, to design for you? I'll give you an example. For one of our clients now, we, we really are taking on a consulting role. We're helping their, them design their entire autologous therapy supply chain. And what's interesting about this is we're designing it for their clinical trials. However, they're intense, it's cytologous. And that means, again, it's vein to vein. By definition, you can't scale it up in the same way that you would scale up uh, a normal small molecule drug supply chain when it commercializes. And even though this therapy might not be used to treat, you know, millions of patients, whereas some of those small molecule therapies might, you still have to go from maybe dozens of sites and hundreds of patients to hundreds of sites and tens of thousands of patients. And so from a consultative standpoint, we're going to need to understand, well, you know, where are we going to be manufacturing this? Where do you want to have the sites um, involved? Because how much temperature, uh, what temperature do you need to have across the, the shipment of the starter material or the therapy? And how much time do you have to get it from the site or from the patient into the manufacturing center? And all those things are interconnected because Let's say for example, it's a Japanese owned company and they absolutely wanna have Japan involved in the trial and sites in Japan, but the cost of the technology transfer to manufacture that therapy in Asia or in Japan would be prohibitive or it's just not there for whatever reason and they wanna manufacture in the US or manufacture somewhere in Western Europe. Where that therapy or where that manufacturing facility is, is gonna have an impact on which sites you can actually support based upon the time it will take to get the therapy back to the site after it's constituted, yes. depending on the science, or yes. on the starter material coming in. All of that really needs to be well thought out. And that's, again, where we really need to come in early stage and say, let's plan this out. Let's look at the flight options. And then it's also not just what can be done, it's cost. Because it's great if we can develop this amazing supply chain that can get the material there. But if the cost is going to be, you know, exorbitant, it might work well for their clinical trial, but it's not going to be scalable when they go to a commercial state. So they need to understand what that is, because if they decide they might, you know, do a tech transfer and, and create establish other manufacturing facilities across regions, that might not be a challenge that they need to deal with now. But if that's not the intent or if that's not the long-term plan, we need to understand that because it completely... There's an um, alteration and a shift in how you set up that supply chain.
0: And when you're working with a client, when you're designing a supply chain, does that include temperature control and discussions around the packaging required for that too?
1: Temperature control will definitely be part of that discussion. I think there's a lot of variables that will come into play. So I think what you see, Chris, is you're going to see temperature control. You're going to see time that you need to move the material. You're going to need to see what are the regulations around import and export on that material. You're going to need to understand chain of identity. You're going to need to understand chain of security. How do you ensure that that therapy or that product wasn't tampered with in transit? Um, you're going to need to understand, you know, communication and how which stakeholders need information when. All of that really becomes time tied together from the temperature standpoint within the personalized medicine space or even just the, the regular biologic uh, therapy space, um, temperature has really become a huge part of it. There is now, um, you, know, you have good distribution practices that are people are widely following. We're seeing more strict regulations around what temperatures needed to be provided. So in the past, if something was ambient, it might be able to go whatever the, the outside air temperature was. Now with controlled uh, room temperature being used, we really have to ship that material at 15 to 25 Celsius. For a lot of biologics or fresh apheresis. it's going to be shipped at two degrees to eight degrees Celsius. And then what we're seeing a lot within the personalized medicine space is a lot of the cell based therapies are actually having to be shipped cryo frozen. And mm. that brings a whole new set of challenges because yeah. cryo frozen, what that means is you're shipping at minus 196 Celsius, minus 150 to minus 196, depending on. You know the definition of the quality team you are working with. And that means you're gonna to have to use a liquid nitrogen dry shipper. You're gonna to need to ensure that the partners you work with, the airlines, um, the drivers, they understand how those uh, shippers need to be utilized. You know, the, the impact of the orientation of the door of the liquid nitrogen shipper actually impacts the whole time of the unit. So that's something that needs to be come into consideration. All those things really have to be looked at and monitored throughout transit to ensure that the product maintains the stability it needs while it's being transported.
0: Scott, in listening to you and listening to you walk through the logistics and the packages, and and I really felt this when you were talking about therapies and clinical trials, there are patients at every end point, maybe even beginning point of, of these logistics that you were discussing. Um, those patients seem to be top of mind for you. Do you almost visualize them as you're talking about these logistics? Cause that's the sense that I'm getting and listening to you.
1: Yes. I think, I mean, we as an organization have to be patient centric. I think that's a buzzword that the industry has thrown out a lot, but I think it's true. You have to be patient centric because ultimately that's your client. You know, you, you could say your client's the, pharmaceutical company, but their client is ultimately the patient. It's the person that's going to receive the therapy. And that's where the impact is. And I think one of the things that we've done as an organization is really try to focus on that. We have something internally, it's an educational, um, kind of continuing education for all the Quickstat employees. And um, it's called the Quickstat Academy. And a big part of that is understanding what the impact of these shipments have on the patients. So you know, what does that patient sample, you know, if, if it's lost or if it's not able to be tested, what's the impact of the patient? Um, what's the impact of a, of a therapy being delivered to a patient so they can receive treatment? And that's absolutely the core of what we do. And I think that's a big motivator. You know, when you when you talk about, when you hear about a lot of the great leaders saying there needs to be a mission, there needs to be something that's clear, you know, to the entire team of what they're working for. That's our mission. It's It's the patients. And I think that's what makes a lot of people go that extra yard. It's not just moving a, a box or a package. There's somebody at the end of that it that doesn't have an impact on. Um, and, and that's really important for, for all of us to remember.
0: And what about the people internally? I find myself thinking about delivering these goods and these types of materials around the world, and you have to have that level quality people at every touch point.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it's going to come from the most client facing person there is, which is a driver straight up to our executive management team. Everybody needs to have that same sort of, um, you know, it, it, it's the same sort of drive to, to deliver that needs to be across the entire organization, that knowledge, understanding, and that calmness under pressure needs to be there because, you know, every shipment we we manage, you know, there, there is some, there is pressure felt behind that. We want to make sure that it's right. So That's really ensuring that, you know, our network management team is really working with the driver networks we're using and working with our local partners within every country. That's ensuring that the CS team understands the clients that they're working with and really builds that rapport with the clients so they know what they want and they can anticipate. Um, That's the operations team understanding, okay, when, you know, certain roadblocks or obstacles come up, you know, having gone through it before and having dealt with it for many years, that ex- expertise and that experience is invaluable, especially in a situation like today, where you know a lot of the things we're facing are things a couple months ago we probably never could have imagined we'd have to face. Yeah. So I think across the entire organization, it's, it's having that that ability to to be stoic, the ability to you know see you know the, the big picture of what we're trying to do, and also having that experience for having done this time and time again to fall back on, and really make sure that our you know that our our clients have that level of trust and have that level of communication so they understand what it is we're doing to ensure that their supply chains don't stop.
0: Scott, to kind of start to close out this conversation, two items. Um, First one, conditioning facilities. Can you just tell me a little bit more? How how does this help clients? Um, How does it work?
1: Sure. Conditioning and packaging is really something we've had to take on over the last number of years just due to the demand of of clients and the demand that the science and the therapies have have been created, you know, require to ensure that they're shipped at the correct temperature. QuickStat has expanded our conditioning capacity um, around the world. So pretty much wherever we need to condition, um, we can, and that's based upon the demands of our clients. And really what that means is there's a few things. One, is allows us to use the most robust packaging possible to ensure that the samples or therapies or material we're shipping Um, is going to be maintained at the correct temperature and not deviate from that temperature. And another nice thing about it too is a lot of the packaging we're using now is reusable, um, which is nice from an environmental standpoint. It really helps reduce carbon footprint. So there's a number of good things that come come out of it, not only the environmental side and not only the robust um, nature of the packaging that we can use across those conditioning facilities, but it actually comes at a reduced cost, which I know a lot of uh, our procurement contacts across the industry seem to like as well.
0: I'm sure they do. What, what would be some final thoughts you'd like to leave with the listeners? Are, are there the top three to five things related to the work you've been involved with, especially during this exceptional period of time, that's particularly important for the Quick Conversations audience to keep in mind?
1: Sure. I think COVID-19 has, in, has shown us... That having a strong supply chain plan and working closely with, you know, your partners is is critical not only in the time of a pandemic, but always. And I think what I hope people take from this is that we start um, taking the collective intelligence that we learned from the pandemic. What I mean by that is, you know, understanding that maybe the supply chain models we had in place before have to be looked at to see how can we make them more efficient. How can we um, build risk mitigation into those supply chains? Um, How can we build additional capacity into those supply chains? So that if a situation like this ever was to occur again, we could leverage it, but also to think differently to say, well, maybe even not during a pandemic, this new supply chain model might be advantageous towards us. So I think having that openness to not just leverage this in a time of crisis, or leverage these new supply chain modalities outside of that is one. I just want all of our clients and partners and people that we're working with know that, you know, we're here for you, that we're very much motivated uh, to continue to ensure your supply chain is is running and we care about you and we care about, you know, the patients that you're serving. Um, and other than that, I think, you know, during this challenging time, we're seeing a lot of people come together and we just keep seeing the phrase stronger together. And I think this, um, you know, this COVID-19 has had a huge impact on the way, you know, all of us is, throughout society interact with each other. And I'd just like to say one of the nicest things I've seen from it is it really does show, you know, a great side to people when you see people work together to overcome these challenges. And, you know, here at QuickStat, we're very much committed to doing that for everyone.
0: And speaking of that all in for the cause, your parent company, Kuhn and Nagel, are they a part of the transportation solutions?
1: Absolutely. I think what Kuninago can do is really they have some great synergies to what Quickstack can do. Obviously, they're a much bigger parent organization and they're dealing with um, sea freight and air freight and overland. And they have phenomenal solutions for their clients. And you know they've been around for 125 years, so they've seen uh, many different uh, challenges throughout their existence. I think there's a lot of complementary services that they're able to offer. And obviously, you know, quick status, um, you know, there's a lot that we can offer within the clinical space, the preclinical space, and the personalized medicine space.
0: Scott, thank you. And I know you would want to pass it on as well to all of the individuals globally um, on the front lines and the back offices who are helping uh, make sure that those materials that need to get to and from patients anywhere in the world, that, uh, that those materials and packages get there.
1: Chris, thank you very much.
0: That was my conversation with Scott Ohanesian. My thanks to Scott for joining and you for listening. To learn more about Quick's global logistics solutions or to subscribe to our podcast, go to QUIC.aero, that's A-E-R-O slash podcasts.